Hello and welcome to the Fremont Podcast with Seth and Nervoretti. And this week we have another open forum on race with special guest Samuel Say. This episode is also on YouTube, so we encourage you to watch it on there. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com slash Podcast, and you'll find the video there, as well as last week's open forum with Neil Shenvey talking about critical theory. Before we jump into the interview, we want to remind you about impact360.org, an awesome organization with those online classes about truth, worldview, defending the resurrection, and more. You can save $25 on any of those courses with the promo code FREEMIND. And if you have a rising senior or just graduated senior, be sure to check out their gap year program. It's a nine-month program designed for those graduating high school going into college to spend a year at the impact 360 institute get a biblical foundation and grounding in the christian worldview and how to defend their faith this way when they go off to college and enter the world they're ready to engage with culture from a biblical perspective check them out at impact360.org and use the promo code freemind to get the application fee waived for the gap year program or 25 dollars off one of those online courses now here's our open forum with special guest Samuel Say. So today I'm really, really excited. This is part two of our series we're doing on race in the church. Last week we had in Neil Shinby. So if you if you missed that, I want to encourage you to go on YouTube and particularly to watch it even more than just listen to it because he has a really good slide presentation where we talked about critical theory. And the reason we wanted to start this discussion by diving into these areas instead of just going straight to like reconciliation because uh, I used an analogy last week. And before I, before I head back to that analogy uh, for those who didn't get to already hear it, uh, Samuel, you probably appreciate this a little bit of the story, but we put out a song about 2015, 2016 called brother. It was a cover song by the brilliance and the song, although it contains biblical truth, it kind of fit into the social justice movement that was, that was really taking root in our culture at the time. And so I had a brief flirtation with being woke. And uh, I went, I, you know, started reading Ta-Nehisi Coates. I, I attended a uh, live um, thing. We both went to watch Cornell West speak in uh, Chicago. And then um, even this year, we went to Eric Mason's uh, woke church conference. So we kind of are familiar with the whole idea. Like I said, for me, it was a brief flirtation until I realized kind of the philosophical and theological underpinnings that were coming through these books and, and the problems involved. So, so you might say I got double woke. Um, <laughs> I got woke and then woke from being woke. But, um, you know, one of the reasons we're jumping into this thing here is because I said last week, we want to, you know, whenever this conversation comes up, it gives us an opportunity to either move forward or crash on the sides. And um, there is, I think we said this last time, there's room for the church to grow and embody, you know, even dealing with justice issues in society, but also bringing together ethnicities where there's been barriers built up for cultural reasons throughout history. Um, But in that path forward, I I imagined a river where there was rocks on either side of the river. And on the one side is like where you don't have any sensitivity. You don't want to hear about it. You don't want to talk about it. You just want to completely ignore it. And on the other side is when you kind of get woke and you buy into, you know, the critical theory or the cultural Marxism. And my thought was right now the current is dragging us hard in that second direction. And so if you're trying to move forward, the first thing you need to do is avoid 
the current. You need to work against the current. So that's why we wanted to start this series on race in the church by talking about this other side that really I'm seeing many people in the church, they, they mean well, but they're being pulled into this unbiblical ideology. And that's why we're bringing in people that are special guests. This isn't reactionary. We've been talking about this stuff for over a year now. Um, when I really got, became aware of it. So today we're super excited. Yes, we are excited about our guest. His name is Samuel Say. And Seth found your work uh, a while back and was just boasting and bragging about all that you were doing. And then we started following you on Twitter. And um, Samuel Say is from Ghana, but currently resides in Brampton, Ontario. And uh, that's a city right outside of Toronto. And we love Toronto. We've been to Toronto quite yeah. a few times. And I've actually been it. to Ghana twice. Oh, work yeah. it out. Work it out. Okay. So uh, Samuel has a website called Slow to Write. And so you'll find his writings and his articles there, slowtowrite.com. That's a really cool title, by the way. I read mm-hmm. that. I was like, yes, from yeah. James. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And so after digging into that's my his life. Art- that's my life verse for <laughs> nervous. <laughs> Mine for his. But... Um, <laughs> After digging into your material, we can tell that you embody that, that your articles, they just have so much impact because they're so thoughtful and so Christian. So um, you have a gift for writing about culture from a Christian perspective. And we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Would you do us a favor and tell us about your journey, your story? I heard a little bit about your testimony, your mom and everything, but just share it with our listeners, just your journey and your a quick version of your story and how you got into this. Yeah. Well, yeah, honestly, thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a, it's a great privilege. It's not usually wise to follow um, Neil Shenvey. Uh, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, but no, yeah. Um, I was, as you mentioned, I was born in Ghana. Um, Ghana is just a, just the greatest country in Africa. That's all. Um, <laughs> no, it's uh, no. So Ghana is a West African country, and uh, I, I lived there until um, I was uh, ten years old, and then um, afterward I moved and I joined my mom. My mom moved from Ghana before I did, three years before I did, um, and then I I joined her, and um, we lived in Montreal, Canada, originally, and. Um, Certain events led us to move towards the greater Toronto area, and I essentially really grew up in the, the you know in Toronto. And um, you know, as I am you know growing up, you know, racial issues were uh, definitely uh, before my eyes in many ways. I experienced racism before for sure, uh, like many people. Um, but these, well, well, but then I, I I was raised in a Christian household, but I wasn't a Christian by any means. I lived a very godless um lifestyle i was full of sin and i've honestly i knew since i was five years old that if i were to die i would die without christ and i would Mm. be uh condemned um for many people you have to convince them that they're bad people and they're you know that not me i knew it very well um (laughs) i was just so full of sin um Mm. so but by the grace of god he convicted me of sin and for the first time even though I'd heard a thousand sermons, I heard a sermon, a very, honestly, a bad sermon. It wasn't a good sermon looking back. But, you know, all I knew was the, the preacher mentioned that you are a sinner. Christ died for sinners. That was enough for me. Um, and uh, I started living for Christ. That was when I was 19. And then shortly after that, that's when Barack Obama's um, 
election campaign starts. I became a Christian when I was uh, I was um, uh, 19, so that was in 06. And then two years later, that's when Barack Obama was running for president. And I remember at the time, um, understanding a Christian worldview, being very concerned that a lot of my black Christian colleagues were right away forgetting about their Christian worldview and their principles. And they started just supporting Barack Obama for no other reason, not really because of his principles or his politics or nothing else, but because he was black. That always concerned me. But um, then, you know, things progress up to that. And then Trevon Martin um, gets killed. Um, and that was the first time that I think Christians uh, had to really deal with how do we respond to racial issues. And I saw cracks. I saw, you know, um, uh, Vadi Bokum talks about a false unity that has been in the church for a long time. That's when I started to see that crack that we weren't as united as we think we are on these issues. But then it wasn't until Ferguson that it just ruptured, that this false unity becomes that much more apparent. And um, that's when I created my blog, Slow to Write, because a lot of my peers that I had grown up with and that I had the exact same views when it came to racial, because uh, I've said that my views have not changed at all uh, over the last 10 years. A lot of my peers, their views have changed. And the Ferguson uh, riots after Michael Brown was killed, um, that was the, real, the, the beginning of it. Anyway, I created my blog because I wanted to try to um, explain my view or, or why some faithful Christians don't agree with Black Lives Matter. And uh, that's why I came up with the, the blog name uh, Slow to Write, because my concern was that many of us were not being slow to speak and quick to listen mm. uh, on these issues. Um, and really also, of course, uh, also we were not being slow to anger as well. So, yeah, then I created Slow, uh, slow to Write, and by the grace of God, um, it's I, I, apparently it's been resonating with certain people, it's been growing. And um, two years ago, I also joined a um, pro-life organization um, as an intern. In the last year, I'm now a, um, a full-time staff. Um, that's also because of these issues. I realized that, unfortunately, we say Black Lives Matter, but um, we say they matter if they're born or when they're killed by white people and not so much when they are just um, victims of injustice, period. So that is why I am now, you know, um, blogging and uh, involved in the pro-life movement. Mm. So good. Awesome. It's, okay, so I'm just going to dive in. We're, I want to read uh, one of these, um, a few of your paragraphs of one of the articles you've written. That, and when I read this the other day, I was like, yikes, but I want to share this with the listeners real quick. Okay, so in 1920, a young activist organized a public meeting in a major city inside a hall holding hundreds of poor, underprivileged people. He delivered a speech describing how his ethnic people were oppressed and burdened, exploited and betrayed, excluded and bullied by a more privileged group. He explained the oppressors had infiltrated nations and become parasites for centuries. His point was that the oppressors destroyed nations because they were greedy and bloodthirsty for privilege. He made the claim that his people were forced into food shortages while the oppressors lived in excess, 
Then he said, quote, we do not believe that there could ever exist a state with lasting inner health if it is not built on internal social justice. And so we have joined forces with this knowledge. We realize that if this movement does not penetrate into the masses to organize them, then everything will be in vain. Then we will never be able to liberate our people and we will never be able to think of rebuilding our country. That social justice movement penetrated to the masses. The activists organized a powerful, promising group of politicians. He formed a group to liberate his people and to rebuild his country. And five years later, in 1925, he wrote the book called Mein Kampf. The activist name was Adolf Hitler. Okay, so in this article, you explain that the social justice movement is a threat to human rights. Will you please unpack that for us today? Yeah. <laughs> um, I've actually been thinking about that article um, over the last month. When I wrote that article, um, by the grace of God, it was well received. It was an honor. I originally wrote it for the statement on socialjustice.com, um, you know, and I was on the same platform as some of my heroes, John MacArthur, James White, Body Bogum, uh-huh. all this. It was um, quite a blessing. Uh-huh. But I also received a lot of um, anger. And uh, and I, I stand by what I said. Uh, I know, you know, I've been looking into these things for several years now. But I think over the last month, as we see what's happening right now across the world, it vindicates my views that much more that social justice is not what many of us thinks it is. It is not a human rights issue. I intentionally pitted against human rights because as a pro-life advocate, Mm. I say that babies deserve the right to live because they are human because they, they don't, they shouldn't have more privileges or more rights than anybody else. They simply deserve the basic human rights that every person Uh, made in the image of God, should have. Social justice is not about human rights. It's actually completely against the idea. It's all about stripping rights from other people to gain privileges for yourself. They wouldn't phrase it that way, but that's really what it is. It's all about self-centered, to be frank, thinking on these issues. So, for example... The abolitionist, they wanted liberty for, um, for, for black people or for any, of course, any slave. The civil rights movement, they primarily wanted liberty for black people. They wanted to end segregation. Black Lives Matter, for example, or, this, or other uh, social justice groups, they're not, it's not about human rights for them. They're not saying we want the same rights as white people or anybody else because they already have that. What they want is we want equal. They want equality of outcome, and the only way that can happen, as Adolf Hitler was saying, the only way that can happen is if you perceive another group as being too privileged because of some injustice, and then you need to strip their um, privilege from them, and then you then bring it upon yourself then to create an equality of outcome. Now, obviously, Adolf Hitler went about it in much more horrific ways than we're seeing right now. But the seeds of that ideology is the same. 
which is not about human rights for all. It's privileges for me against your rights. Wow. Man, that's good. So that's, good. that's good knowledge. And just for anybody, again, like we did last time, if you have any questions that you want to ask Sam, just go ahead and type them into your chat bar. It's going to go to Stephen at the, at the end. We're going to um, put those questions to him. So at, at any point, if you have any of those, go ahead and write them in. Uh, Sam, can you describe, like, you know, because a lot of Christians hear social justice and it, it, it connects to them like, man, that's the compassionate, the empathetic, the sympathetic thing to do. We, we must be involved in that. We want to stand for the oppressed. We want to stand for minorities that are being unjustly taken advantage of or oppressed yeah. in any kind of way. Um, but you're saying the social justice, the terminology has a specific meaning that's not probably what people thinks it is. Can you describe the history of that movement and that term and and just help us understand where it has landed this, yeah. this day and age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, I think the, uh, the term was originally coined by a uh, Catholic priest or, uh, but over time, initially it was, it didn't really mean one way, one thing or another. It, it was, um, so for example, I think I mentioned in our article that, that, um, Adolf Hitler used that, that phrase, um, as a way, really, to just push his own evil ideologies. However, on the other side, his enemy, uh, Winston Churchill, or his rival, um, they he used the term as well too to actually stop the injustices that the uh, that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were committing. So the term itself isn't wrong. However, mm-hmm. over time, over time, the word has now become. Um, it, it's, it now really does refer to just one ideology, which is, uh, as, as, um, as Neil mentioned last week, it's now a, a, it's now, um, it's like almost like a political manifestation of the critical theory philosophy, right? Okay. In, in that critical theory is really, um, you know, it, it's, it's a Marxist ideology. You know, um, Karl Marx was primarily focused on, the economic aspect of the oppressor versus the oppressed. Critical theory, in a very basic way, is really about dealing with the economic um, disparities, they might say too, but really it's all about the socioeconomic disparities between male and females, white people and black people, um, citizens or immigrants, um, you know, cisgenders or, or, uh, or transgenders. It's all these things. It's very divisive. Uh, it's actually intentionally divisive. Um, so the term, when I was going through school, when my professors would mention social justice, they did not mean human rights. They didn't mean human rights for all people. They really meant, or they didn't mean individual uh, rights for all. They didn't mean the um, equality under the law. What they really meant is equality of outcome, that justice, true justice, or in their view, um, a warped view of human rights is not that you have the same rights as your neighbor, but it's that you have the same possessions as your neighbor. That's essentially what they would um, you know, see as, a, as a social justice. Wow. Yeah, that's a big distinction there. And, you, you know, you say here in that same article, in South Africa and every part of the world today, social justice doesn't fight racism. It fosters it. It doesn't oppose sexism. It supports it. It doesn't pr- protect presumption of innocence. 
it protests it. And, and like you said just a minute ago, it doesn't defend rights. It destroys it. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Why does it do that? So I, I am always in my full-time work, I'm always having to um, work against what, you know, what social justice ideology has produced. And one of the most horrific things, even more than what Adolf Hitler did, is what um, the most prominent social justice group have created in our, in our culture today, which is feminists creating mm-hmm. or pushing for abortion. We forget this, that feminism is really the predominant, the most um, influential social justice group in the world. It's not Black Lives Matter. In fact, Black Lives Matter are actually just, um, in a weird way, part of the feminist movement. They are very openly feminist and very uh, openly pro-abortion. So when you talk to pro-abortion people, they identify, and rightly so, as a social justice group. So, because when we talk to them, I always say, do you believe in human rights? And I, I go through what we call the human rights argument. And I say, look, we would agree scientifically that preborn babies are part of the human species. They will agree with that. But then they'll say, okay, yeah, but what about the women's rights? Because they're not thinking about, okay, we want the same rights for the preborn baby that the, that the, that the mother has. They, they will say, yeah, they're both human but one should have more privileges, mm. not rights, but should have more privileges than the other. So in that example, you see an ideology that's actually pushing against the human rights of other people. Mm. In this case, preborn babies. Or um, even as it relates to what happened recently with George Floyd, right? Where we all, I think we all agree, as in the entire of America, <laughs> all of the world, would agree that that was an injustice, that was murder. What we may disagree on is what was the intention? I said, not intention, what was the motivations behind it? Was it racist or not? If, I'll put it this way, if I see a black man murdering a white man, I see it as a black man murdering a white man or a man murdering a man. If I, if somebody else says that black man murdered that white man because black men are thugs, black men have a history of being thugs or being violent and all that, we would say that's racist. But if we see a white man, including even an evil white man, including an evil white man who's a cop that murders an innocent uh, black man, we say he did that because he's racist. Because white people have historically, cops historically have been racist. But if we think about it, we are judging that cop or that white man strictly because of his his skin color, in this case here. If the black man, or sorry, if the white cop, as in Derek Chauvin, if he was not a white man, we wouldn't think it was racist. We would think it was injustice. We would think it was murder, but we would not think it was racist. But because he is white, we're saying the only possible explanation for that is, is that this man hated black people. That's racism. Um, I, I wrote an article several years ago, and surprisingly, it happened to be one of my most controversial articles where I explained that I was walking in a tunnel and I saw a white, a, a young, small white girl uh, walking towards me. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I appreciate that. And as soon as she saw me, 
she just kind of um, essentially attached herself to the wall. And initially, I'm like, what, what, what are you doing there? I'm not going to hurt you. You know, is it because I'm black? And that was the title of the article. Is it because I'm black? But then afterward, I, th- I thought to myself, wait a minute. I've told my little sister that when you're walking in this tunnel and you see any, any man, especially a big, a big man, be on guard. Just be careful because in that moment there, you would be vulnerable. I'm thinking that's perhaps the same thing this girl is doing. Then I think, why am I assuming the worst of her? If she wasn't white, if she was a black woman, would I think she was afraid of me because I'm a black man? I wouldn't think that way. But because she's white, I'm assuming the worst of her intentions and her motivations. And in that way, I'm the racist. I'm the one who's judging her because of her skin color. Now, it might be that she is a racist. I don't know. God doesn't call me to discern people's, uh, people's motivations. But he has called me to discern mine. And I know that was the reason why I was uh, assuming the worst of her. So then I was the one being racist. So to bring it back to George Floyd, again, it's an injustice. However, it seems pretty clear that right now, all these riots, all these protests are not focusing strictly on the injustice. They're focusing on the racial injustice, right? And that's all I would say. The premise behind that is a racist um, um, assumption that's leading to all these riots. So that's one example of how I think social justice breeds racism and breeds injustice and really is an attack on human rights, not the other way around. Man, yeah, that's really deep. And not to go too too in, in the thick weeds here, but how do you, you know, when someone comes back and they say, well, yeah, but there is a pattern. And so you don't have to know all the facts of the case. Like the pattern, the narrative already tells you the context. And so when this happens, it's just another manifestation of that. How do you even begin to deal with those types of responses? Yeah, patterns are dangerous. Um, Racists, white racists, have used the idea of uh, patterns to commit injustice against black people. I'm I'm very uh, familiar with uh, this group called the Innocence Project. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with them, they are it's essentially a network or an organization that uh, focuses on exonerating uh, people right now who are in prison, um, mm. you know, who, who basically were falsely accused and put into prison. And a lot of their, of their clients are black men who were falsely imprisoned. By all indications, many of them were because they were black. And they were believed to be guilty because in... Look, let's, let's be real here, right? The idea is, unfortunately, uh, black communities in America and Canada and across many Western nations, are, there's a lot of crime happening. I know in America, black people represent only 13% of the population, sorry, <clears throat> but they um, make up roughly, I think, 55% of the murders. That's a pattern, right? So now what if a white man says, yeah, this black man that's been accused of, of uh, murder. Maybe he's innocent, but there's a pattern of black men uh, committing crimes. So because of that, it's safest for us to say that he's guilty. We would say, wait a minute, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. Well, what's the difference here? It's the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So Derek, Chauv- Derek Chauvin is, again, um, by all indications, a murderer. 
and that he should be tried for that. But the pattern of white cops historically killing black men doesn't make him guilty of that racism. He might be, but I don't know that for a fact. And my standard isn't patterns or assumptions. Assumptions. My, my standard is the word of God. And it tells me that whoever condemns the innocent and whoever justifies the wicked is an abomination before the Lord. I don't want to, ju- I don't want to condemn someone falsely for being racist when, again, they would be innocent of that. I, I cannot do that because then I'm guilty of sin. And really the whole issue with all this is this racism, injustice, all of that. It's primarily a sin. So I don't want to sin as a response to sin. Then what's, then how am I being better? Mm. That's good. Hallelujah. That's really good. And and you kind of wrap this article up with that very idea because not only did you say that social the social justice ideology is opposed or is a threat to human rights, but you said it's also a threat to the gospel. How so? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there are many people today who have naturally made social justice a social gospel where they say that if you are not on board with this, you are redefining, you are, you are not embracing the full picture of the gospel. So then they would say that Christ did not just come to die for, for sinners, that he did not resurrect to justify sinners, that he did not ascend to heaven to um, you know, to, you know, to become the intercessor for, for sinners and that he will return to rescue redeemed sinners. They would say that's not, a, that's not the, the full gospel. They would say part of the gospel is here today, here right now, part of the gospel is you have to essentially end poverty. You have to end racism. You have to end any kind of injustice. But that's not the gospel. Christ himself was very clear that the poor you will always have with you. Now, of course, he's very clear that we have to help people, but it's not to end um, these things because these things are a reality of sin in a sinful world. And only Christ himself can come and end these things. And unfortunately, social justice ideology focuses on a man-centered worldview instead, uh, instead of a Christ-centered worldview where we say, Lord, we pray for you to help us love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray that we would hate evil, love good, and establish justice. Establish justice, but not to end all injustice. That's not our job. That's Christ's job. Right? Christ will not allow anyone to take what is his and what is his, you know, uh, what makes him glorious. Right? So on top of that, too, these ideologies are inherently divisive. You know, um, so... So uh, Galatians 3.28, I believe, says um, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. They would say, no, no, no. There is, um, you know, that we are Greek or Jews. Uh, sorry, Jews or Greeks. We are male or females because this ideology through identity politics or, uh, I guess I don't say this word because it's a mouthful, but <laughs> intersectionality. There we go. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, um, it says, no, 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 your identity, your identity is primarily that you are a male, you are a female, um, or you are, you are a Jew or a Greek 
or you are black or you're that's essential to who you are. And that because of that, who you are, who you are before the world, before your neighbors, before God is, you are a male or a white person who's privileged. That's your identity. That's who you are at the core. And then if you, on the other end, if you are a black person who's a female, it's, man, you are a black female and you're a victim. That is who you are at the core. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. If you are a Christian, your biggest identities, your two biggest identities is you are a sinner and yet in Christ you are a saint. That is what matters most. But they redefine that. And that's dangerous to how we understand sin, how we understand our Savior, and really how we understand our fellow brothers in the faith and also our fellow um, sisters. And uh, it's just, and that's why right now you're seeing so much division because it's inherently divisive. It's all about me and my people. Wow. You know, there was a pastor today that was, no, not today, a pastor, pretty well known pastor recently that was saying, Essentially, that look, white Christians, uh, right now as I grieve over uh, George Floyd's murder, I, I, can, you, I cannot grieve with you the same way I can grieve with my black, um, essentially unbelieving friends. Because, because we're black, we share this unique identity. We can grieve together. <laughs> that is scary, right? Because the, the Bible tells us do not mourn like those who do not have hope. Right now, black people who are not in Christ, they are not mourning the right way. Mm. But white people who are in Christ, who are obeying the gospel, they are mourning the right way. But because of your skin color and because you're forgetting what the gospel says, even as a pastor, you are now disobeying scripture. And now instead of being a light to your black friends who may not be in the faith, you are not joining in this dark, miserable world of no hope over injustice. You know, so that's one way that it threatens the gospel. Man, wow. that's good. Stephen, did you have something you wanted to ask, brother? Yeah, man, you're preaching fire. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Um, as you were saying, though, you know, justice belongs to Christ, uh, you know, we, which we know is biblical. And so I'll ask you the softball question and then the follow-up. So does racism still exist in America? And then two, if justice belongs to God, are we then called to do anything about it? Or is, do we have any kind of personal responsibility to address that in our nation? Yeah. Yeah. Racism definitely exists. Um, every sin still exists. Um, and every sin will always exist until Christ returns to end all sin. Um, so unfortunately, you know, it does. Uh, honestly, I would say, you know, uh, I'm not trying to be um, controversial, but it clearly exists today, except not the way that I think most people think it is. It exists, honestly, as we see right now, what's happening against white people, where white people right now are being attacked for being white. You know, whiteness is, you know, being attacked and all that. So, but anyway, racism against white people, against black people, against brown people, against Asian people, it all exists. And how do we stop that? Well, we can't end racism, but we can, um, we can call people to repentance. We can preach the gospel. We can change people's minds that way. Um, there are many sins that, and in fact, in many ways, I, like many people, um, I was raised, um, yeah, I was raised to have a certain view of white people. 
And I had to unlearn that through Christ. I had to learn that, no, we are all sinners, and I'm one of the worst sinners that I know. Uh, I say one because I have some friends who are quite horrible themselves. Uh, <laughs> no, but, uh, but, but no, I am, uh, I'm, I'm a sinner, you know? And look, one of, the, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest conversations I've ever had in my life was with an older white man who one time confessed to me that he was struggling with racism. I was so grateful he told me that. I didn't hate him for that. I wasn't mad at him because I'm a sinner myself. He's just, and he actually is able to tell me that, brother, I struggle with this. We pray together and we, and you know, um, and he, who knows, he might still be struggling with it now. Uh, I haven't spoken to him in a long time, but it, it's just a sin. It's a sin that's, that's hurt so many people throughout history, but it's still a sin. Um, so how do we, again, change that? Preach the gospel, believe the gospel, and live out, you know, um, the implications of the gospel. And um, I think that naturally leads to, I suppose, another question. I don't want to go too ahead of, my, you know, ahead of myself here. But, um, you know, then people say, well, what about systemic racism? Right. But you know what? I'll let you guys. No, it's all, let's move probably, to that. That's yeah, a good one. Right. I, one of your articles on systemic racism, the conflict, it says here, the conflict over slavery was, is it right or wrong? The conflict over segregation was, is it right or wrong? However, the conflict over systemic racism isn't. Is it right or wrong? The conflict is, does systemic racism exist or not? What are your thoughts? Do you feel like there's a systemic system out there oppressing blacks? What has been your experience or research on that? Yeah, um, I would say... As I said earlier, that racism exists. I'm sure there are racist politicians. I'm sure there are racist judges. I'm sure there are racist people across the world. In fact, in many ways, many of us, not, not, not everyone is tempted by every sin, but many of us might struggle from any kind of racial bias over time. Nevertheless, systemic racism I would say doesn't exist. Um, the way, the way many people within the critical theory okay. of philosophy. Sorry. I'm sorry. I love it. You're going into the oh, definition no of it. Please do. No, no problem. The way many critical theorists or social justice um, advocates would describe systemic racism is a big problem, but they would essentially, in a very simple way, they would describe it as any policy, any culture, any traditions, any behavior that they would say perpetuate inequalities, that would perpetuate a, a culture where it's essentially black people might perceive it, perceive it as being unwelcoming to them. Uh, the word perception is very important there, but also would be any kind of culture organization that would also um, create an environment where, or just, just, just any, any culture where there isn't racial equality. Now by equality, I mean equality by outcome, right? Where if in their mind, if racial disparities exist, that is a sure sign of systemic racism. Hmm. That is how they would define racism. So it's by perception, right? Or by 
racial disparities. If you define it that way, then sure, I suppose there would be systemic racism. The problem is that is very unhelpful. That, that is not, I would say, a biblical way of understanding systemic racism. I would even say it's not a logical way of understanding systemic racism. So in the beginning, I mentioned uh, I intentionally addressed that the issue over slavery and segregation um, wasn't is it good or bad, is it right or wrong. It was about, sorry, I, no, it wasn't about does it exist or not. It was about is it right or wrong. That was the issue. Today, it's very important to know that people are not debating whether it's okay or wrong to have systemic racism. The debate is, does it exist or not? And the whole premise behind that is, if it does exist, well, let's stop it. That actually shows incredible progress, right? That in the past, they were saying, yeah, we know it exists. We don't care. Either it's, it's good or bad. Now, everyone is saying, no, 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 no. If it does exist, we'll stop it. But today, people like myself are not convinced it exists. So I mentioned, I, I, I defined... The, um, I defined how many critical theories, uh, sorry, I explained how many critical theories define systemic racism. If we believe that, I think, uh, I know uh, Neil Shenvey also wrote an article about this uh, a few days ago. If, you, if we believe that, then a lot of things, essentially everything, is systemically racist. Everything is. Right. So, for, for example, right now, I can't look at the entire room here. I can't see everybody. <laughs> but if there isn't say, an Asian person amongst us today. That's because, I'm sorry, uh, you know, guys, but <laughs> because you guys have created a culture where you've made Asian people unwelcome to your show, right? Now, I know that's not the case whatsoever, but, but that would be the implication. And now to the church, this is what concerns me most. Christians, many pastors have jumped on this train. Well, naturally many of them now are being called racist because not every church is multi-ethnic not every church is 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 filled with every group of people right so then under that basis every, most churches today are systemically racist right and that's we know that's just illogical that's not how that doesn't make, make any sense now biblically racism isn't about an environment isn't about perception or disparities. Ooh. It's really about partiality and hatred. Hmm. So if we're going to define systemic racism, it should be strictly based on, are there policies, are there actions being done to create or to foster racism or partiality and hatred against certain groups? If there is, it should be plain because biblically, if you don't have evidence for something and then you claim something is being done, you're in sin and you need to repent. And God is very strong about that kind of uh, sin. If you don't have evidence for it, then you have to assume the best biblically. But if there is that being, if, if, if there is partiality and hatred, we see it, then we do like the abolitionists, the civil rights movement did, you stop it. Right now, I find it incredible that nobody's, well, some people are asking this, but no one's asking, okay, your forefathers, as in Black Lives Matter, they would claim, were the abolitionist and civil rights movement. They stopped what they uh, 
sorry, they, they were very clear. They wanted slavery abolished. They wanted segregation abolished. Today, what Black Lives Matter and other groups are asking for isn't for a particular law or policy that needs to be abolished. It's institutions that they perceive as being racist. That's part of the problem. In this ideology, they're going to want to abolish institutions instead of actual policies, right? And that creates major, major problems. So um, biblically, I would say logically, systemic racism does not exist. If it does, I think every Christian today who's faithful to the scriptures would, uh, would identify these things. And then also, one of the things that they say today, I, re I read a book um, a, few, uh, a few months ago by uh, an author, um, well, I won't mention his name maybe, um, but he wrote a book called uh, The Call of Compromise. So I suppose you know, maybe somebody might figure it out. And I read the entire book, and he kept kind of insinuating that this is so obvious. I mean, if you're making a if the whole book was essentially about how the church is complicit today in fostering racism against black Americans. That is a very strong thing to say. You are making a claim against Christ's bride. And if you're saying that, you need to make sure that you're clear in that so that people then can truly repent. If somebody comes and accuses me of a sin and they're not very clear as to what, what I've done, how can I then repent? Right? I need to know what I have. Give me clear, um, clear actions that I've, I've done that I can truly repent of. Anyway, towards the end of the book, he mentions there is no smoking gun on systemic racism to prove it. Then he says that racism is, is not overt anymore. It's now covert. Well, my question then is, well, you're saying there's no smoking gun, which really means you don't have the evidence to back it up because he didn't. In the book, he didn't have any evidence for that. It was all, essentially, his argument was if you are a conservative or if you vote for the Republican Party or if you essentially disagree with critical theory, you are a racist, essentially. That was his premise. Um, but the bigger problem for me was people like him would get angry at people like myself who do not agree with them. But yet they're saying, guys, there's no smoking gun. It's not overt. It's covert, which means it's not easily seen. So if it's not easily seen, why are you then angry with me that I can't see it? <laughs> Right? <laughs> it, 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 it's, a, it's a bizarre thing that mm. you say, God, it's so plain that if you don't see it, you're in sin. You're this, you're that. Yeah. But then you say, oh, yeah, guys, it's not so obvious anymore. They've changed it. it, it it's, it's an, illo an Ill illogical uh, way to see these things. Um, so, sorry, I'm kind of going over the place. No, it's good. No, I think, good. I think you're exactly right. So, you know, I've probably for the past couple months, I've been looking into this topic of systemic racism. And so I, I don't have a fully formed view on it yet. I've been kind of looking at both sides. And so I'm glad to hear from you today, Samuel, because you're helping clarify. One of the things I have noticed is the problem of the definition as it's being used by the people that are leading the discussion. And I think you're exactly right. And you look at, um, this is one of the things Neil brought up, but the the top two books on Amazon for the past, you know, ever since George Floyd happened, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, and then Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And Ibram, for instance, he's one of the leaders in this discussion. He defines systemic racism 
in that book as a racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial inequity between racial groups. Racist policies have been described by other terms, institutional racism, structural racism, and systemic racism, but those those are vaguer terms than racist policy. Racist policy says exactly what the problem is and where it is. Racism itself, it's institutional, structural, and systemic. And, and he's just said any disparity is one-to-one cause systemic right. racism. And that, like you said, it, it commits you to all sorts of bizarre logical and theological implications that I think we need to reject. But let me ask you this. Is there a way... To reconstruct and say, I mean, it might not be the wisest thing to continue to use that terminology when it's being used that way, but could we reconstruct it as Christians and say, well, here's systemic racism. Let's not define it in that way, but let's talk about these unjust, um, I I forget how you put it before. It was really, really well put how you said it, um, favors, uh, uh, what did you say? It unjustly favors partiality. Yeah. Um, Unjust laws that, that can that lead to uh, partiality and even sometimes maybe unintentionally. Could we come back and, and use it that way? And the reason I ask that is because um, Tony Evans, uh, who, you know, family friend, he, he officiated our wedding and I, I, I will often refer his works because you're, you're very studied on James Cone theology. Um, Tony Evans was coming up in his theological training when that theology was very popular and he explicitly rejected it and wrote against it and stayed to a biblical view. So I think he's someone who historically has really um, stuck with the scripture over what was going on culturally. Um, But he put out a video recently on systemic racism. And I want to put this definition before you and see what you think about this. He basically said it's the presence of racism defined in the historical sense, um, how we would define it, being embedded to the structures of society, whether those structures are political or economic or legal or medical or related to housing or employment. It is where it has become part of the policies or procedures of a way that a particular entity operates, for example, slavery, uh, peonage in the criminal justice system or debt servitude. people where they're denied employment or educational opportunities based on race or denied access to goods and services as in Jim Crow segregation, or even churches that were unwilling to accept people because of their skin. And to, to press forward on this, he said, as Christians, you know, we should be engaged in speaking out and helping to work against these types of systems. Are you saying, would you admit that some of those are systems that perpetuate racism. And I did notice here that there are more historical examples. Are there anybody that's claiming that there are current examples that match those types of examples? Does that question make sense? Yeah. There's a bunch of questions there. So maybe no, you no, could just... no problem. Um, I, I, I respect and admire Tony Evans, but I think that's also a problematic way of understanding these things because in many ways, he didn't define it differently than the critical theories. Um, so, okay. So I'll, okay. So what I would say to that is the government, every government isn't, isn't, uh, ideal. Um, the only good governments we're going to have, the only 
perfect government we're going to have is when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom in the new Jerusalem. Until then, there's always going to be oppression. My, my job, you know, as a pro-life worker is focused on oppression against preborn babies. But the issue, if, if the argument is going to be made that, the, that there are systemic problems, you know, in America, in Canada, in the UK, everywhere else, we will all agree with that. We vote because we recognize that there are systemic problems um, and sometimes even oppression, you know, in our nations. But once you attach the word racism to it, then you're, then biblically, it means that there are systems that are, um, that are, there's a system that is partial or hateful Mm. against a certain group. It's I, I, I biblically or I theologically and not, and logically cannot take, remove that from my mind. To me, it would be like, uh, so I'll give you an example. Um, I am a pro-life advocate, as I've been saying several times now. Right now, there is systemic oppression against preborn babies. Why? Because Roe v. Wade, right? And it's, we, it's, 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 it's legal to kill babies. It's intentionally, um, it's, it's, our government is partial against uh, preborn babies. I cannot say the same for people who are born. If, if you kill anybody who is born in an unjust fashion, it will be murder, right? And that is the issue I see with this, that by that definition that Tony uh, Evans gave, anything then, you could say that for anything, just because mm-hmm. there are essentially disparities or perceptions of oppression doesn't mean it's so if you cannot identify it. The example that he gave gives were slavery and segregation. Well, we know that because slavery was legal. We know that because um, you know, segregation was legal. Right now, actually, there are explicit laws against black people or any group, unless you are a preborn baby, being um, discriminated against. So I don't see any evidence for that. Um, I think, again, as Christians, we can say, let's, let's have laws that are, that conform to God's word. Let's be, let, let's, let's, let's uh, help create a more just world. Absolutely. But if we're going to say that these systems are racist, the burden of proof then is on us. And we need to prove what about these systems are actually racist. And from that definition, I've not um, seen that. Yeah, no, I think that's, I I would agree with you. I think there's still some definitional problems there. And um, if I could say one more thing, Uh, I don't know what you said, but I do want to emphasize this. The word racism um, isn't in the Bible, but it really, from what, how we understand it, it's in there as partiality and hatred. I think it's so, so, so important that if we're going to say that systemic racism exists, that means that we're saying, again, that systemic hatred against a certain group exists, that systemic partiality against a certain group exists. It's a claim. So if we make that claim without evidence, we are not only guilty of being wrong, 
we're guilty of false witness, which is a sin in of itself. That's why this is so important. It's not a matter of just definition. It's a matter of what's sin or what's righteous, Ooh, so right? So I think, you know, in the same way that it's, I find it really odd that if I were to make a, an accusation against a church, a local, a local church, saying this church is systemically racist, I would be asked to say, well, wait a minute, what policies do they have in the church? Like, what evidence do you have that would say this? Because we recognize that it's a very important thing to honor a, a local church or to honor their elders. But when it comes to the government, we have a, a weird view that we don't think that we can actually dishonor and disobey God's word about us honoring um, our politicians by what we say they're doing. Partiality mm. and hatred are always intentional, which is one of the concerns that we have because you, you, don't, you are not unintentionally sinful or let me, you're not unintentionally partial or hateful. It's always intentional, always, right? So we create a burden on people that God himself has not created on people when we say, even though you didn't mean to, you were racist. That is not right. You know, that's ungodly, I would say. You know, and I think if we want there to be repentance for racism, we then need to identify racist actions. Otherwise, there can be no repentance. No, that's good. And sorry to keep drilling down. I just think it's such an important topic right now that people are wrestling with. Um, And it sounds to me like you're saying, okay, if you make the claim, we need to be able to point to laws, maybe policies that are partial against a certain group of people that are unjust. Also though, what would you say about something like, you know, redlining or something where it's not codified in law, but it left space where racist people can kind of take positions of power and box out people based on their race. Would you, would you say (sighs) some people, a lot of people refer to that as systemic racism as well. How would you address an issue like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I forgot, that reminded me, I forgot to answer that one uh, part of the question about, you know, what laws today might be perceived yeah. as uh, systemically racist. I think redlining, so today actually there's several laws against redlining. Um, so redlining is illegal today. Uh, every you can day. maybe explain what that is for people that might not have heard of that term as well, if you don't mind. So redlining is essentially uh, banks. Uh, now there's different the different yeah. kinds of redlining, but particularly the most well the most well known is banks turning down loans for black people um, because of racism. That would be generally the idea. And there and now today that's illegal. Uh, there are very strict, severe uh, laws against this. And if any bank is caught doing this, they will be um, fined severely. In the past, that was the norm. That was a, a practice. Now, the redlining laws, some of them in the past, were not strictly racial. They were not focusing perhaps sometimes on race necessarily. But what I would say, those laws were, you, you could say those laws were not inherently racist, but it was underpinned by segregation and Jim Crow laws, which were racist. So there was an actually, there were racial, sorry, there were racist policies under Jim Crow that then would um, enable certain laws that were not inherently racist to be applied in racist okay. ways. So that would, so, that, so that's an example where I would say then, yes, okay, you have a system already in place that, is, that would create um, 
that would create avenue for a, a certain policy to be used in a way that would harm black people. And then today, I wanted to touch on this: the drug on the drugs on war is uh, sorry, the drugs on war, the war on drugs, <laughs> drugs on war. <laughs> if there were war, if there were uh, drugs on drugs war, on that'd war. be that'd be uh, <laughs> that'd be scary. That'd be very scary. Um, but the war, the war on drugs is, uh, and then of course mass incarceration um, are probably the two biggest examples that some use to say, see, this is an example of systemic racism. The problem with that is again, the, those laws are not inherently racist. It just happens to be that there are more, um, there are massive mm. racial disparities uh, involved in the. Um, in the in the in the practical ways used to implement these laws, but what many of us forget actually is that in the 1980s, going back even the 70s, but especially in the in the 80s, it was actually black leaders, right? Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, a lot of these leaders who were openly saying the government needs to be very firm in going to black neighborhoods. To, to take, to arrest and to uh, criminalize people, especially black people who were committing, so who were selling drugs to young kids, right? This is all on the, on the record. Wow. But when the, the, the intention was to help black communities, the intention was that perhaps if we criminalize these things, then black people would be more apt then or in these communities to, to stop what they were doing. And that um, it would also then, of course, keep um, bad characters away from young people. It would help children. It would save. It would save uh, families whose many of their brothers and their and their fathers were 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 you know selling and doing drugs. That was the intention behind it, but it didn't work. It backfired tremendously, and now we will go back and say, well, that's racism. That's systemic racism. But no, in fact, Reagan was heavily criticized for his in- inaction in not you know, implementing uh, more harsh and, and strict, um, you know, practices against uh, the use of drugs in black communities. So today I wouldn't see any, in fact, the government today is, you know, through affirmative action has been trying so many things to help black communities, which is also backfired as well. So I don't see any real evidence um, that the government is systemically racist today. I want to move on, man. Really helpful uh, clarifications you're making there. We want to move on and talk a little bit about anti-racism and white privilege and these concepts that are floating around. But before we do, um, one last aspect of systemic racism, and I think part of the definition problem too is that these things all get lumped together uh, in this mass. And so you have things like I'm about to talk about that, that can you know, they can be troubling, but not necessarily harmful like slavery and Jim Crow, where they seem to be on a whole nother level. Um, But this, you know, the idea that unconscious biases of a majority culture and how it makes uh, black folks feel like outsiders, and this can happen in the church. How do you, um, as a Christian, how can we address that without maybe lumping that all together and see, this is the racist society I've been telling you about the whole time. How do do you help us deal with that? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, it. So, 
when you live, when you are a minority in a majority culture, inherently, you're not going to have the same exposure or access to certain things that the majority culture might have, generally speaking. What I mean is, for example, it's changing now, but one of the biggest things, and I have a little sister and a mom, so uh, this is one of the things. I know when it comes to especially like, you know, when it comes to makeup or, and a lot, <laughs> and, uh, you know, or even something as simple as bandages, right? The bandages are, you know, it's it, these kind of things. So that's, of course, a very um, insignificant example that I'm using here. But, you know, or even when it, when it comes to, uh, I know, for example, when it comes to Oscars are so white, and that was, you know, a big thing a few years ago is that when you are in minority culture, you're not going to have as much representation as the majority culture will have. But that's natural. That is not necessarily inherently... Now, there might be biases. It might be. Um, you know, if I'm a Ghanaian, if I was... Um, or say now, you know, when, when, I'm, when I'm with my group of friends, you know, mostly black people, I might, I might um, behave in certain ways that might make more black people more comfortable than the white person there. Be just because that is a group that I'm more accustomed to. That doesn't make me sinful, right? Um, because bias is sinful, right? Now, again, if I am actively preferring black people over white people or white people over black people, if I'm actively doing that, then I'm in sin. But if I'm simply, um, if I'm simply behaving in a manner that unintentionally might make somebody else feel unwelcome, that, that, the burden then isn't on me. The person then, I would hope, assuming it's in a Christian context, would come to me and say, hey, this is how you're, um, you know, when I'm in this environment, I feel a certain way and I want you to know about that so you can tell me why it is you do this. You know, I know I'm not being, I'm being very general, but I think the issue here is that so many times we assume the worst of mm -hmm. people's intentions and we assume it's because of our skin colors as to why we might feel unwelcomed or unheard or unseen. But sometimes it's us assuming the worst of people and we simply just go ask questions. And I think it's so important biblically because I choose not to be offended by certain things. Sorry. I choose to be only offended by sin. It's really important here. I think in, in this discussion here, anti-racism, unconscious bias, these, we should, these things should be focused on righteousness and unrighteousness. And if I am offended by something that is not sinful, then I shouldn't be offended by it. I shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Right. I can, it can be, now it doesn't mean that I can't struggle with that. You can, you can struggle with it, but pray, ask questions, talk to people, but be very careful not to condemn someone or not to assume someone is in sin because if they're not in sin, you are then being the accuser of their, of the brethren and you don't want that, you know? So look, I, I, I um, I, when I was, when I was, um, I was raised in a Pentecostal church, a black Pentecostal church, and I uh, became reformed theologically. And then I went to the first reformed church I saw, and that was a Dutch reformed church. 
Now, I don't know if you guys know anything about Dutch Reformed churches. I see Donna's last smile in there. It is a huge difference from my African black Pentecostal church. There were some awkward moments, very awkward moments. There were certain practices that they were accustomed to. That wasn't designed for an African. It was designed mm-hmm. for them. But it didn't offend me because when I go to these spaces, I'm not going there to be served. I want to serve them, right? And I want to focus. The Bible says that counts each, count yourselves as, as, as uh, less significant than the other person. So they are more important to me than I am to myself. At least I, 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 want, I want that. So if they sin against me, then I would say, brother, you've sinned against me. You need to repent so we can reconcile. But if they're simply doing what they're accustomed to without any ill motives or bad intentions, they've not sinned. And if I'm feeling that way, I need to be more sober-minded. I need to be um, essentially less self-centered, you know, in my view. I'm not, trying, I'm not saying not to be harsh on people. I'm just saying that let's call out sin when there is a sin. And if there isn't a sin, we then need to be more mature and more Christ-centered in how we deal with it. Man. Wow. Getting, getting a good preaching uh, sermon That's on That's not today. only countercultural, <laughs> it's counter-church today. Right. That's powerful. Yeah, it is powerful. So good. Well, you know, and that brings us kind of into the next thing, because we, we have a lot of people now, pastors, leaders in the church, repenting yeah. for white privilege. Um, this, this, Survival kind of. What, what's going on there, and what do you think about that? Jeez. White privilege? Well, it's just the whole, the, the idea that you're, these many folks are coming out repenting for it. Maybe the concept itself, where does it come from? What is it? And then should, is it something that the church should, should join in movement-wise, repenting of this and having yeah. these kind of moments? Yeah. Uh, as I'm sure many of us know, white privilege is a concept developed. It's not necessarily new, but it was developed um, in, uh, I think, 1989 by Peggy uh, McIntosh, who um, is a, um, a feminist, um, critical theorist, um, and she describes it as essentially unearned advantages that white people have over other groups in the society, especially black people. And by unearned advantages, it would be more like... Um, the the privilege of assumptions that benefit you, um, the privilege of being favored in your culture over others, um, the privilege, and it, it's become much more, you know, um, general now. But even privilege of not being perceived as a criminal, the privilege of not being perceived as um, as a bad student if you are in school. The privilege of um, just, just again, so many things that I guess would be stereotypes um, against black people and stereotypes that would favor, I suppose, white people. That's a very general, broad way that I would define it. The problem with that, well, okay, so one, what I would say is this I've said before, I don't like the phraseology whatsoever. Um, I think there's a major problem with it, and I'll get to that, but. Generally speaking, generally speaking, I'm okay with the notion that white people are generally more privileged than black people. 
the problem is white privilege says the reason behind that is racism. I say that's not, now that could be in some cases, it could be, it definitely was the case historically, right? I mean, if you were a white person in America in the 1800s, you were more privileged because, you know, I mean, you, you were in a culture then where racism wasn't directly against you. Um, just by being born, you were not going to be uh, a slave. By also in the 1900s, or especially in the uh, 19, well, in the mid 1900s, um, it, by being white, you would receive access to all to the best things in America uh, and in Canada. But if you're a black person, you were segregated from the more privileged uh, things. So that was true then. Today, I don't see any evidence for systemic racism. Sorry, for, for, uh, for white privilege. And I, and I say that because it's, it's difficult to separate the two. You know, that's why I think I made that mistake. Because if systemic racism exists, then you would have white privilege. But if, there, if our system or our culture isn't directly um, racist against black people, if they're not partial to, to white people, then if, if white people have privilege more than black people, I don't see any evidence that it's because, at least culturally, systemically, because of racism. I don't, I don't see that. Now, like I said earlier, white people generally are more privileged than uh, black people, but I would say the reason for that, and since today's Father's Day, the reason for that is because the biggest privilege anyone can have when you're born in America and Canada, is being, is being born in a household where you have both of your parents. That is the biggest privilege. I grew up without a father. So I, I wrote an article where I explain the kind of temptations that led me, you know. So I'll give you an example. Um, I, you know, I will say this because it was, it's been on my mind all day today. When I was, the reason why I said to you guys earlier that I knew that I was a sinner and I stood condemned at five years old it's because I was committing sins at five years old that only a married couple should be committing at that age. Oh, sorry, not that age. Um, should be committing, period. <laughs> but when I was five years old, my dad wasn't in the home. Uh, my mom was working two jobs. So I am left by myself, and I become exposed to certain things that I should have been exposed to. And then from five years old, for several years, I was committing very, very sinful acts. Then through that, I become much more violent than most of my peers. I was, a, I had like 15, 20 fights before I was like 15 years old. Uh, fist fights, uh, not just arguments. Um, I was horrible at school. I didn't graduate from high school. I ended up going to college because I applied as a mature student. I was a very horrible student. Uh, I lacked discipline. Nobody was in the home. I was, it was on me to take care of myself. My mom is an incredible mom. She was amazing. But when you're not in the home, you don't have as much control naturally as you would if you, had, if you were in the home. Black people in America, only 25% of black people grow up in a household with both of their parents. Only 25%. For white people, it's 75%. It's actually quite the other way around. 25%, sorry, 75% of, of white people who grow up 
with their fathers in the home. That is a 50% gap. That gap, I would say, is the basis for all the other gaps when it comes to socioeconomic issues. So white people are indeed more privileged generally than the average black person because the vast majority of black people, unlike the vast majority of white people, grow up without um, the father in the home. You know, so um, when it comes to the perceptions of black people uh, as not being, you know, sometimes educated or um, sometimes not being seen as good citizens, that's because, unfortunately, that's because some people are racist, but also because there are some people out there who also recognize that, unfortunately, there are, um, compared to white people, certain challenges that black people are having right now when it comes to, you know, uh, criminal behavior, not every single person, of course, but as a whole, whether it's criminal behavior or essentially just socioeconomic issues. And again, that all stems from, from um, the um, fatherlessness in black homes. Man, so solid, so thoughtful. Um, what do you recommend then if you were on an advisory board for some of these pastors and influencers in the Christian world that are coming out and they are not specifying what white privilege means? Mm-hmm. Because it, like you said, in the Peggy McIntosh definition and kind of in the critical theory world, social justice world, it's always linked to these unearned advantages that are based in racism. Mm-hmm. And so basically in order to not be complicit in that racism, you need to acknowledge that reality yeah. and repent of it. And usually the further step of repentance is allying with a particular framework, in this case, the cultural Marxism or the, the yeah. democratic voting or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend to pastors and leaders that are kind of getting going down that path a little bit with yeah. this language? Yeah. Um, I appreciate you saying that because I, I, sh- I should have addressed that. Um, I think part of the problem is we are borrowing, we, we are borrowing these concepts and we're not realizing that these words come with certain very sure definitions and it comes from a worldview that is really anti-Christian. And I, I've said that white privilege is, is a, is a, is a, is, a, is another word for envy. You know, mm. a lot of us look at, you know, cause look, black, black Americans, and I'm working on an article about this, black Americans, are the greatest, most privileged black people to ever exist, ever. You know, I'll be honest with you, I got a bit, a bit emotional, um, you know, I was in tears as I was thinking about this. Black Americans come from a people that were the outcast in Africa. They were the outcasts in Africa. They are made slaves in Africa, by the way. It wasn't, slavery didn't happen. White people didn't go and kidnap you know, no, it's, they were already slaves in Africa, including my home nation, Ghana. And then they were sold to, uh, you know, to Europeans or Americans. And um, so they are the outcasts there. They survive the slave dungeons, which were like many of them died, but they survived. Then they survived slave ships, which many of them died and did not make it out there. They survived that. Then they survived the cotton fields. Then they survived the, the, uh, the Jim Crow segregation. They survive all these things and that today 
black people are actually thriving. Now, again, compared to white Americans, you would say they're not thriving. But as a people, compared to what they've come from, they are thriving. But we don't acknowledge that. We don't see God's grace in that. Even, it's actually, the shocking thing is, in some ways, black people are actually overachieving compared to how many black fathers are not in the home. It's actually quite incredible. And really, it's, not, it's, it's, it may, it's shocking to say this, they're overachieving because, not because they don't have talents, no, obviously full of skill, but it's also because of America itself, where that's where black people, look, right now, my, a lot of my Ghanaian relatives in Ghana, they, they love America, and they desperately would want to be in America, you know, uh, because they look up to of black Americans. In the past, black Americans were forced into slavery and forced into, uh, into America. But now many people want to come to America to be like black Americans. It's quite an amazing story. But I mention these things because we don't recognize that there are great privileges that black Americans have and that white privilege is so focused on Okay, white, black Americans or black people are privileged, but they're not as privileged as their neighbors. That's the basis. And that's, that's envy. That's wrong. God doesn't call us to compare ourselves to other people. God, com- God tells us to, to be grateful for what we have. God tells us to not look at what your neighbor has, not to look at their possessions, not to look at how others might perceive them. God calls us to be grateful for what we have and to keep our eyes on him, not our neighbors. Because white people, if it's a pastors, if they, if they focus on white privilege and they borrow into it, I've, um, there, is a, there is a parable that I think is very helpful here, the parable of the talents, where the owner gives um, one slave five talents. That's money, but five talents. Then gives the other person two talents. Then gives the other person one talent. If we borrow white privilege as an idea, we would then have to um, change how we understand that parable. That parable is all about, I'm going to give you, God say, I'm going to give you certain things. And I want you to just be faithful to those things. Mm. Don't worry about what the other person has. So for that, for that, for that one person in the, in, in the parable, that one person, um, you know, gets upset, gets lazy, and then hides, uh, hides his, uh, his talents. And then when the, when the master returns, he says, well, you know, essentially I didn't trust you, and that's why I didn't work hard for you. He's, he's focusing on what the other two are received. That's envy, that's sin. Right now, I may not be as wealthy as my neighbors or as my white neighbors. God isn't calling me to be worried about that. God is calling me to focus on what he's given me and for me to be a faithful steward over that. And pastors right now are helping push an ideology that is actively teaching people to be envious of their neighbors. And that's sin and that's wrong. They simply need to teach what the Bible says. Wow. So powerful. Can you talk about the spread of this ideology? And at the risk of sounding like an alarmist or conspiracy theorist, where are we headed if this continues? And um, 
how can we work against? I know you're doing a lot and people are standing in truth, but advise us. I mean, how did this take off and just spread like wildfire? And why are so many people latching you mean on? White privilege or? Yeah, the, 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 broader, the, the broad, the white privilege. Anti-racism. Social, yeah, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think... There are a lot of reasons why I think many of us are borrowing these ideas right now. It's partly because, uh, unfortunately, black people historically have been oppressed. And when that happened, um, a lot of pastors failed to speak against the culture. They failed to speak, to be faithful to the scriptures against the culture. Mm, okay. And I think a lot of people look at their forefathers in that way and they don't want to be like that. And that's good. The problem is, ironically, they're doing the same thing their forefathers did. In that now, they're actually abandoning, abandoning um, you know, biblical theology to embrace a worldly philosophy that is actually conforming to the, to the culture. It's the exact same thing. You know, and that is very dangerous, of course, where now people, you mentioned um, black liberation theology earlier, people are now starting to embrace these ideas where they're redefining what sin is. They're redefining mm-hmm. what righteousness is. They're redefining the gospel. And that is a huge, huge threat. This is destroying churches. I've seen it myself. I, I'll be, I've lost a lot of friends because of this stuff. And it's sad, you know, it shouldn't be that way. Uh, unfortunately, the church now is, you know, is helping to push these ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's only going to hurt churches, hurt people, and hurt souls. Hmm. Yeah, I want to I ask you a couple more questions about that and how to handle it in the church in a little bit. I know we got a couple audience questions here, Stephen. Why don't you go ahead and jump in and, and uh, do some of those real quick? Yeah, so one of the questions, this was tagging on to one of yours, Seth, but Jeremy P. was asking, Sam, what's your view on Christians today asking forgiveness of sins committed in the past? This is that idea of that repentance of, you know, if you're white, you need to repent to a black person for the sin of slavery or something like that. How, what is your opinion on that, your view on that? Yeah, uh, that's um, very helpful. Um, I'm glad you asked that question because I've been thinking about that myself, too. There are many people who have been pushing um, for that kind of um, idea or practice. And some, sometimes they would base it on, you know, certain texts where it talks about um, God visiting, I think this, um, I'm forgetting exactly the, the, the text, but visiting the sins of the fathers to, to his children. The problem with that is there is a very sharp difference between Israel or or America, or even what that text means. That text was addressing to people who were still in sin, who were still committing the sins of their fathers. It wasn't people who have, who had stopped doing what their what their uh, fathers were doing before. In fact, Christ says that He will not visit in another text it, it, that He will not punish children for what their fathers did. So, people who use those texts to say that white Americans today should be um, repenting for their, you know, grandparents or, you know, forefathers' sins are, I think, mistaken. They're greatly mistaken. The other thing is, is that Israel was in a covenant with God. 
Israel was in a unique position that you had prophets and priests that would um, that would repent on behalf of their nation as in, in their role. America is different. But even then, America has already, you could say, repented over its sins in that America has stopped systemic racism. Now, if someone believes that they haven't, then that makes more sense. But America has, I would say, stopped systemic racism and that America has apologized profusely in the past, you know, for all of its actions, you know, in, you know, in slavery and segregation. So I would say that today, and also theologically, you repent for your own sins. You don't repent for somebody else's sins. God is not going to hold you responsible or punish a person for another person's sins. He can only, he will only, according to his word, punish people for their own sins. And if we create, if we, if we um, think that way, if we think that people should be repenting for someone else's sins, again, we were defining what sin is and what repentance is. And uh, that's a very dangerous thing. That's a great, yeah, and that's similar to, to Neil's answer last week. It's funny, we had a similar question then. That's great. So Kuyan Elmore, she's asking, does the ideology of white privilege actually perpetuate more racism? Can it mm. actually put people in a mindset to where they feel like they're better than others? Yeah. Um, you know, and would it give black people the mindset that they might still be enslaved? Mm. Yes. Yeah, the Bible says, do not be partial against the rich or the poor. Do not be partial against the great or the small. Um, yeah, the, the idea of white privilege is racist, too, in that it assumes that a white person's advantages or privilege is based strictly on their skin color. And that is not right. That is, that is you're being partial against that white person. You're being racist against that person, so that person by assuming that they have what they have um, because of an injustice against you. You know, it's a sinful, um, I would say, idea as well, too, in that, uh, again, there are some white people who might benefit from any kind of an injustice. Um, in the same way that I know many black people um, who might also benefit in that way, too. Um, you know, this is, this is uh, very different, but I'll give an example. I, I say I have, I have black privilege. And what I mean by that is, as a pro-life advocate, when I am speaking to people about abortion, they will sometimes come to me and they're like, you're a man, you can't talk about abortion. Then I'll say, okay, if the white cop wanted to come and shoot me in my face, would you defend me? They'll say, yeah. I'm like, well, but you're not black. They'll say, yeah, I'm not black, but I, I'll, they're like, oh, okay, I see what you mean. <laughs> and I, I, jokingly, I say that's black privilege in that there are certain things that I can, um, that give me a certain advantage in people's eyes. Um, because of my skin color or sometimes I will, um, you know, uh, because of my work again, I get it. You know, we get people who get upset at what, we, what we're doing and they will threaten to call the cops on us. And I'll be like, um, okay, sure. Call the cops on the black man. I'm used to it. And then, <laughs> like, oh man, I can't do that. But anyway, I'm just, I'm being kind of silly, but, but, uh, but yes, yeah, so going back to the original point, um, that concept is, is unbiblical, you know, look, and we forget this too, that in the early church, Romans had a privilege over the Jews, right? They did. They lived in majority culture. 
uh, in fact, the the uh, you know Caesar and the Roman government were oppressing Jews at the time. The Apostle Paul and the Apostolic writers, the New Testament writers, they didn't address these things. They didn't because now they did actually address it, but not in the way that we would do today. They addressed it by again, don't be partial, don't favor the other one over the other, love each other. You know, be quick to uh, to listen, slow to speak. Like all these things, if we follow them, we will not be um, be partial and in sin against each other. And unfortunately, by embracing these concepts, we're actually now disobeying God's word. Wow. So uh, one more. This is from Donna Spencer. She says a term that Shelby Steele uses in his analysis of the social issues is white guilt. Have you heard of white guilt, and what do you think of that term? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shelby Steele is uh, one of my heroes. I, I, I admire that man. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, 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 I actually meant originally to mention that. In the, and I think, I, I guess, yeah, so white guilt is part of the reason why a lot of people, a lot of white people, a lot of white pastors are buying to this thing. Because, again, as I said earlier, they they – they're guilty over what their forefathers failed to do. And they now feel as if they need to make up for that. Uh, and sometimes really white guilt is really from a pride, you know, where many of them will say, you know, other white people don't love you black people like I do. Unlike them, I will speak for you. I will virtue signal, essentially. I will practice my righteousness on Twitter before all of you. That's really what it is. Um, and some people might be sincere. Some people may not just may not be, you know, informed. I mean, they might just be vulnerable to believing in these uh, ideologies themselves. But uh, but yeah, white guilt is yeah very much prominent uh, right now, where many people are just eager um, to. I mean, I've had many white people come up to me trying who don't know me, and they think that saying, "Hey, Sam, just want you to know, your Black Lives Matter to me." I mean, <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, but, but like, you didn't have to come and it's like, just, sure. just, yeah, yeah, just, just, I don't need that, man. Just treat me like you would anybody else. Mm. That's all I want. That's all I want. I actually, it's racist to favor me over white people, anybody else. I don't want that. I want equal treatment, you know, over, uh, I want equal treatment uh, for me and for everybody else. That's good. This one, Brent just asked this question. How do you address these issues with people in the church when there's such an emotional reaction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rather than being critical? Uh, he sees people in his church buying into these ideas. And so I, I would say to also rephrase the question, how do you deal with it with fellow church members and the emotional reactions? And then if you're a pastor, specifically a white pastor, how can you address it from the platform, knowing the emotional reactions that people have? Mm, mm. Um, okay, uh, I'll, if I if it's okay, I'll start with the white pastor first. Uh, I've actually received right now probably about a hundred emails from pastors over the last few weeks, oh. asking for essentially the same thing. That's um, one of the sad things about this that it's putting a lot of people in a very difficult position. A lot of people who are afraid because they're being told that by being white you know um, you don't have authority to speak on these things 
God has given us everything we need to train, to correct, to rebuke, to teach any kind of sin, any kind of ideology that's raised against Christ. In the Bible, you have everything you need to do to teach against racism, injustices, everything. And to be honest with you, I get, um, it's, it's scary to me that pastors, I don't mean that, I don't mean that against anybody. Um, I, I know it's hard. I know by being a black man, it's easier for me to speak. But my skin color isn't authoritative. God's word is. So if you're a pastor, you're called to preach the text, preach the word in season or out of season, whether it's popular or unpopular to do so. Preach the word. And I want to be very clear on this. The fear that some pastors feel today about preaching against critical theory or, or uh, social justice is the same fear that some people had preaching against racism. And look at the ramifications of all that. We wouldn't be where we are today if so many pastors indeed just preached the Bible. Of course, many of them did. Many of them did. But many others failed to. And that's why you have this vicious cycle going on. So pastors, just preach the word. That's all. Be, you, being a white, you being a white person doesn't matter. God, look, my black voice isn't authoritative. It's not precious. Your white voice, you know, so to speak, isn't authoritative or, or, um, or, or unessential. It doesn't mean, it, it doesn't mean anything. You, God's, God's voice is what matters here. That's, is, that's what matters. If I'm speaking and I'm going against God's word, then I'm wrong. It doesn't matter whether I'm black or not. So you have God's word, just preach the text. It may not be popular today, but it's popular in heaven. It's the truth. So just preach it. And I think there's also, uh, uh, one of the concerns here is in the past, in the past, we, we, we knew maybe 10 years ago, there was an ideology, it's still, I guess, around there today, but not ideology, I suppose, more of a, a form of pragmatism that was involved in the church called the seeker-sensitive movement, which was many pastors being afraid to say certain things because they thought that by saying so, it may keep certain people away from the church. That if we don't talk about, I don't know, sports or something, men won't show up. You know, that if we don't talk about, if we don't have drama, you know, dramas on Sunday mornings, it will keep, um, it will keep uh, mothers from our church or something. That was very bad and unbiblical. And I think today, the same issue is facing a lot of pastors today, especially a lot of white pastors, who are now thinking, if I don't, if I speak against this stuff, my black members will leave the church. But if I speak against it, black people won't come to my church. Well, pastor, God has not called you to attract certain kinds of people to your church. God has called you to attract sinners to your church. It doesn't matter who they are. And that will only happen if you preach the Bible and preach it fearlessly. Because you are not called to fear men, you're called to fear God. And right now, if God is instructing you through the scriptures to speak out against it and you're not, you have a bigger concern, not the wrath that you might face from, um, from people who have bought into this ideology. It would be, it would be you being unfaithful to what God has called you to do and that he will hold you accountable to that. Um, so that's what I would say to the pastors. When it comes to members, um, 
that's tough, you know. Uh, uh, I think a lot of us are, look, not every local church is going to be completely unified on this thing. It's going to be people who are going to have different views. I think as brothers and sisters in the faith, God calls us to sharpen each other. So if one of your church members is reacting sinfully to this, you have a duty to love them by going out there to correct them. And if they might dismiss you because you're white or anything else, that's not your problem. That's their sin. Now, the time for everything. Sometimes it's best to maybe wait to a, a more opportune time. But sometimes that opportune time is now. That's really up to the, the context. But I think these ideologies are not godly. They're divisive. They're harming souls. It's imperative that many of us speak in a very loving way to other people. We have mm -hmm. to. Because it's not just destroying um, the culture right now. It's not just destroying societies. It's destroying people's souls. I know people who've come to leave the faith because of yeah. this thing. So we need to, for their sake, because sometimes we may be afraid to speak because we think, well, I don't want them to feel as if I don't love them. That might be true, but sometimes it's because we're afraid to speak because we love ourselves too much and we don't want ourselves to be perceived as a bad guy. But sometimes you have to do it in a very, of course, uh, um, wise, truthful, uh, kind, and loving manner. It's imperative. But, uh, but sometimes, too, it might mean you just pray about it. It might mean that, too. I don't know. I can't speak for the person. But what I can say is it's not ungodly to speak to a brother or a sister who is falling into this trap. Mm. Wow. So I've heard some um, pastors trying to address these issues and they boil it down to, you know, there's, there's one race, the human race, and that's how God sees it. Do you think that's a helpful distinction or terminology or should we phrase it differently? Yeah, I should think it's a very crucial uh, thing. Um, there is indeed only one race, one race, but with many ethnicities. Actually, sometimes I would say differently that there's actually two races in the world. There is the holy race and the unholy race, yeah. you know. So, you know, First uh, Peter 2, I think verse 9 maybe, um, you know, says that, that we are chosen, uh, a chosen um, race, the royal priesthood. Um, and the, every Christian, you know, doesn't matter whether you're Ghanaian or even a Nigerian, I'm kidding. Uh, Nigerians and Ghanaians have a, <laughs> uh, have, have, a, have a bit of a thing. Um, but white, black, it doesn't matter. If you are in Christ, if you are God's child, you are part of the holy race. Now, that's in a spiritual sense, right? But on a biological sense, um, there is only one race. We're all one in Adam. And I think it's very important because too many of us see ourselves as members of a certain group that I'm with the black people. And you're with the white people. That's part of the problem here. So I think it's very important to say that, no, we're all one here. And what we want is to be seeing each other as uh, indeed our brother's keeper. You know, that I, 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 I honestly try, I try very hard not to see black people as my people because that's not what God calls me to. Um, white people, like I want to love a Derek Chauvin the same way I want to love a George Floyd. Is that uh, you know, countercultural? Yes, but God calls me to that. Um, so it's very important. But of course, 
we can't erase the ethnicities here. God, God says that in the, um, you know, when he returns and we're in New Jerusalem, there'll be many tribes, many ethnicities worshiping in the same language before the Lord, right? And that's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful that we're going to have uh, Ghanaians, Nigerians, white people, black people, Asian people, um, Canadians, Americans, all these different groups. Uh, and it actually is important that we emphasize that because that's the hope. You see right now, the whole world is a mess, you know, and it's not new. Today, it's essentially white people versus everybody else, I, you know, uh, I guess, right? It's not really white or black. It's now white versus black versus, uh, you know, sorry, it's white versus black with Hispanic, with Asian. Um, you know, I'll be honest, this whole thing about people of color annoys me to no end. There is no such thing. I can't stand it. I'm not unified with black people or Hispanics or Asians against white people. Um, that's, you know, anyway, that's a whole different kind of issue. But um, I think we have to appreciate that we are different. Um, you know, we have different ethnicities and God rejoices in that. God boasts in how we're all going to be together, praising the same Lord in the same language. Um, it's many languages, but one language before the Lord. Mm. Wow. Man, you didn't know you was coming in here for a revival service today, did you, Brother Sam? <laughs> Rebu- rebuking us all, man. <laughs> um, you know, as we're, as we're starting to like round third base here, um, let's kind of jump back to, I think Nervous started this discussion earlier, but, you know, with the woke church movement, are you, do you think, it seems to me like we're at a tipping point right now and, and there's more of a move to a radical view um, even with people that are kind of have been the mainstream evangelicals, um, black folks, white folks, all of them kind of rushing now to one side of this issue. What do you think? I guess my first question would be, do you think I'm seeing that rightly? I mean, even with some of our Christian hip hop artists, um, they're starting to use more and more specific um, language out of that ideology and pack it with more and more of, of the um ideas within the language even explicitly what what should be our response to that because you talked about not naming names before but i feel like we're at the place now where sometimes we're actually having to say hey just so you know this person is actually um promoting this ideology so if you're promoting them uncritically you're going to be leading your congregants or your the people that are following you down a path you might not want to lead them down how do we deal with that right now Yeah. So just so yeah, just to clarify, I have no problem naming names. Uh, my <laughs> I I only didn't mention that author's name, Jamar Tisby's name, because I didn't know what your uh, thoughts were on that. I just wanted to respect that. But no, I sure. um, naming names isn't a sin. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul mentions names. Um, you know, so. Um, but yeah, um, I think it's important to. Um, so yeah so it is important to mention names um as a way to warn people sometimes as to don't follow this person's path so that's one i think um sorry help me out sorry the question was how do we go about addressing that or is it yeah sorry it wasn't a very well worded question but (laughs) no uh, in, in essence like how do we how do we um encourage others how, how do we help them see that some of the people we've all been following mm. for maybe the past 15 years that hey they're they're kind of moving in some directions here mm. 
and um, both with people that you have influence over, but also how do you interact with those folks? Because there mm-hmm. seems to be this massive move right now in that direction. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I think it's to direct people to what they are about. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not trying to boast here. One of the things that makes me really glad and um, it, it encourages me deeply is when people say, hey, Sam, uh, when I read your article, it, it made me focus on Christ and what the Bible says. That is all I can ask for. And that's you know the most encouraging thing I could ever hear. I mentioned that because I think we being Christians, what we need to do is ask some of our brothers um, who are influenced by some of these more influential people to say, what is that person's focus? What is, what is driving them? Even when it concerns this, you know, racial justice, what is it? Is it, to honor God? Is it about unifying the church? Mm. Or is it really about, this is my people, black people mm. are being oppressed and I want to fight for them. And, th- and see, okay, how did the apostle Paul, how did Christ handle it? I've, I wrote an article about this um, a week or two ago and I mentioned that when Christ, in Christ's earthly ministry, his people were being oppressed. The Jews were being oppressed. He didn't really say much about that. His focus on was was on sin, 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 and I've come to give you life. Mm. He came to both condemn Jews and Gentiles. That's what the Apostle Paul did too. The focus should always be on the gospel and Christ. The sad thing here is no one like where's the talk of sin? Where's the talk of where is Derek Chauvin's soul going if he passes? If if he perishes, where is George Floyd's soul? I'm not. I, I, we we are not focusing on what really matters here. As we talk about justice, it's sad to me that so many people are not focusing on the injustice of any kind of sin and how God will punish sin. That when people die without Christ, they go to God's prison forever. And we're not focusing on that. We're all focusing on the here and now, and that is it. And that is a very dangerous man-centered view. That we are called to not just be look not just be serving him now, but to be preparing for the future. This is not our home. We're making this our home. This is not our home. And all this talk here of justice, we are making this our home. We are not citizens of America or Canada or anywhere else. We are citizens of heaven. We need to be awaiting our savior. But instead, we are awaiting justice. You know, Now, we should be awaiting justice, but the perfect justice that only comes from Christ's return. Instead of hope, putting our hopes in chariots and horses and putting our hopes on the other way around, look, um, conservatives oftentimes do the very same things that social justicians do, which is they think that, well, if we just vote in Donald Trump and everything will be saved. If we just vote in uh, the Senate. Now, I'm not saying, look, I'm very political. I think it's good to be engaged in these things, but don't put your hope in that. Put your hope in the only perfect politician, which again is Christ. And unfortunately, um, so, so to kind of get back to the question, 
I would just direct people to Christ's word. What does Christ say we should be living for? And then say, is this person saying the things of Christ? Are they acting out? Look, I'll be honest. Okay, Lecrae. All right, I'll just you gave me you gave me an opening to mention names now, so you've now opened the uh, the can of worms. Um, you know, I, I think a few days ago he did a celebration of blackness, something like that. That is awful. I'm sorry. That that is that that that. There are people right now who are grieving. Mm. Many of them in a sinful manner. You can go celebrate blackness, celebrate Christ and how He redeemed sinners. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. He cried out for his people who he was saying that because they're not believing the gospel, no matter how much they might be upset with the Roman government, no matter what it is, because they are not in Christ, they will go to hell. Mm. And it, it, it disturbs me that we would have a platform. You have, you have a mic that people might want to listen to you. And instead of directing them to Christ, you direct them to their blackness. What is that going to do? It won't stop anything. Mm. So what do you recommend? You know, a lot of pastors are giving, here's sort of the phase, you know, if you want to respond, if you want to not respond how we used to respond, you know, in the white evangelical church by being complicit in racism, kind of a la the Tisby book you talked about. In the present, what we have to do is listen, get educated, and then the education piece will come in this form. Read Color of Compromise, read White Awake, read White Fragility, and then you'll be able to really ally yourself. How, how do you help people that are um, being influenced by that? What do you recommend for them? And you kind of said this, you said get in the scriptures. Um, but a lot of them, you know, of course, are going to come back, well, this, these guys are coming from the scriptures, they're, but they're interpreting through a, a certain lens. What would be your quick recommendation to people who are starting down that path reading those books? Mm. I think so yeah I mean my I would say go to the scriptures and test all things test what they're yeah. saying to the word of God yeah. and I'm very confident I if anyone is doing that in a faithful manner they will see all the um the the all the, the, the really some bad teachings, false teachings, and heretical teachings um, from this movement. But I would also say, when you read these guys, and this is something that we've not mentioned yet. We mentioned the whole thing about white privilege earlier. Yeah. There's different kinds of privileges that they've talked about. There's male privilege. There is white privilege. There is cisgender privilege. And here's one that you're not hearing a lot, but I think it's going to be an issue soon. And it was trending on Twitter last year. Christian privilege. That is a concept within critical theory. And I would say, because Max Weber um, is the one that really kind of, he's one of the, um, you could say the forefathers of critical theorists. And he said that Christian theology essentially is the biggest threat to conflict theory or you could say Marxism, or critical theory. If we are the biggest threat to that, there is eventually we are going to have to defend our Christian theology. And it's already happening. We, look, so liberal, liberal theology was created, at least in the American to- uh, context, in some form, uh, especially black liberation theology, comes out of uh, liberal theology, which came out of... Um, 
how many people responded or reacted to Christians who didn't react in the, the, the way people thought they should have to slavery. So um, some people said, well, if Christians are going to say, look, we can't say that slavery is wrong. Now, American slavery was wrong, but some people said that anyways. And that led to liberal theology. They said that, okay, then the Bible can't be true. If, the Bi- if you think the Bible defends slavery, then the Bible can't be true at all. That was born out of that. Mm. We have to realize that we're going to have to defend our Christian beliefs because we're going to be told that we Christians help perpetuate racism, slavery, injustice, and all these things by not subscribing to these ideologies. So just focus on what is the trend? What is the focus? What are they saying? Where's the ideology coming from? Does it honor God or does it not? And I am sure it does not honor God. It is not from God. It is a, it is, um, it is what Paul encourages Christians or commands Christians not to follow, which is myths and ideologies, genealogies that do not do anything but harm the soul. Mm. Yeah, that's good, man. Well, last question here. Just give us your final word for the church, for this cultural moment. And I think I know what it's going to be, but, but just, you know, give us just one thing. What, what, what should we do right now? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important that I say this too. A lot of people, a lot of black people, um, now, critical, critical theory isn't just focused on black people. It's focused on many you know, kinds of people. But critical race theory in particular um, is focused on black people. And I think while it is right for us, I would say, to reject the concept of systemic racism today or white privilege and all these things, it doesn't mean that black people have not had racism in their life. They've not suffered it. And it's important to acknowledge that. It's important to know that's happened. Nevertheless, as you might guess, just preach the word. Mm. Preach the word. Study what these things are saying. Read Wide Awake. Read White Fragility. Read all these things. But don't believe them because they're not from God's word. Just teach God's word. Like I said earlier, black voices essentially are irrelevant. White voices, irrelevant. Every, every voice is irrelevant if it's not in accordance and in conformity to the word of God, because God's voice is what's really relevant to our souls. So that would just be my mm. words. Selah. <laughs> uh, man, Samuel, this has been a treat for us, man. Just thank you so, so much awesome. for spending this time with us today. If you're, if you're still on with us next week, we're going to be having Ryan Bomberger in, and he's um, going to be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And then in a few weeks from now, we're hoping to bring uh, Sam back and Neil Shinby back, maybe Ryan and a couple others to do a panel, just Q&A. So anything that you didn't get to ask today, uh, make sure you tune back in as we, as we continue on this series for just a few more weeks. And thank you guys for coming in today. Do you have something? Yes, check out his website, slowtowrite.com. Slowtowrite.com. Is that where people can primarily reach you and reach out to you? Yeah, they can also um, uh, find me on Twitter, slowtowrite.com as well. And then also they can check out um, endthekilling.ca. That's endthekilling.ca. That is the website for the organization I work for, the pro-life organization I work for. um, So if you want to check that out, please uh, do so as well. 
Amazing. Yeah, y'all will definitely want to check out his website. Just so many good articles. I went on a binge <laughs> this past week. I read like 30 of them. So wow. love them. They're so awesome. good, man. So good. I'm wow. not really 30, but probably 10. <laughs> legitimately. No problem. Um, but yeah, it's so, so, so good. So thoughtful. And um, yeah, just thank you guys again for, for popping in today. This will be up tomorrow on YouTube. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, share it with your friends, watch it again if you you know want to catch anything. So bless you guys, and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed our open forum with Samuel Say. If you'd like to learn more about Samuel and what he's written, go to slowtowrite.com. You'll find lots of his articles there, and you can also look in show notes for direct links to the articles that he mentioned during the open forum. And don't forget, we'd love to interact with you on social media. You can follow at FreeMindFM on Instagram and Twitter, FreeMindPodcastFM on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash FreeMindPodcast. If you haven't yet, please take a moment and give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That'll help us get discovered by more people searching for this content. And we have bonus episodes available to you, some additional Q&As with Neil Shenvey from last week's Open Forum, and many Q&As from our special guests in the past. You get access to all those with a donation of any amount. So go to patreon.com slash freemindfm to support the show. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week.